Hi, this is Popeye from Calling Hours, formerly of Farside and your favorite train wreck, and you're listening to The New Scene. Beautiful. Oh, you do voiceovers. That's why that was so good. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And we've got another blockbuster episode for you this week. We have Jay Robbins. He's got an excellent new solo LP out. It's called Basilisk. And you know what? With someone like Jay, it's impossible to cover everything, but we covered a ton. Government issue... Jawbox, Burning Airlines, his new solo record, his recording and producing career. This is easily one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on this show, and that's coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Reviews. Give us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Now, I've been on the push to 200 reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we're getting very close. We're at 189. We just need 11 more to get us to 200. Thank you so much to everybody who has submitted a review. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, open up the podcast app, search the new scene, scroll down, hit that five-star button. And if you write a review, I'll read it at the end of the show. Shirts. The new scene has shirts for sale at Deathwish Inc. We have a variety of t-shirt options, and we have a long sleeve option. The long sleeve option is sold out in size large. We have all of the other sizes, but pick one up soon because it's limited quantities for those, and once they're gone, they're gone. Also, you can always email me at newscenepod at iodinerecords.com. And don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. Iodine Recordings is excited to announce that Further Seems Forever are joining the label. Iodine will be partnering with Further Seems Forever for an important retrospective anniversary project that includes out-of-print material. More details will be announced soon. But Further Seems Forever will be playing some shows with The Movie Life and Fairweather. They've got some tour dates in March in California. Check their page or the Iodine page for a full list of dates. Horse Whip have March tour dates. Check out their page for a full list of dates. No Man and Jerome's Dream will be playing New Friends Fest. That's August 2nd through 4th in Toronto. New Friends Fest is the fest that's put on by a few members of Respire. You remember them. They've been on the show. Great band. And the lineup for this fest is great. Jerome's Dream, No Man, Seisha is playing. It's nuts. Go check it out if you can. Dead Bars have tour dates starting this week. They're in the Northwest in Vancouver. Go check them out if you're in the area and check the Dead Bars page for a full list of dates. No Man, Glitter and Spit, the new LP, is up for pre-order. Get your copy. And remember, No Man will be playing St. Vitus with Strike Anywhere They're playing May 3rd in Richmond, Virginia at Richmond Music Hall, and May 4th 
in Brooklyn at St. Vitus. And join the Iodine Noise Cult, Volume 3. If you sign up, you get every Iodine vinyl release that's coming out this year with a bunch of extras. Space is limited, so sign up soon. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor. And Hits Records. You know them, you love them, and they're home to a lot of bands we know and love. Hot Water Music, Don't Sleep, Boy Sets Fire, As Friends Rust, Be Well, Terror, Values Here, the list goes on and on. And did you see the big news? Hot Water Music have a new record coming out May 10th. It's called Vows. There's end hits, exclusive variants of the vinyl, and those include deluxe die cut editions. There's exclusive merch items. And listen, the first variant of the vinyl is already sold out. So get what's left and get it soon because these will sell out. There's two new singles out there, Menace and Burn Forever. They're out right now on all streaming platforms and they're excellent. New music from Hot Water Music. That's exciting news. And listen, End Hits has a lot to offer. We've got The Draft. That's the band featuring three-fourths of Hot Water Music. Their album, In a Million Pieces, has been fully remastered and is available on a beautiful Gatefold 2XLP. We've got the discography box set from Swedish hardcore legends Abhinanda. End Hits is also home End Hits is also the home of Values Here, Porcel's new band. They put out one of my favorite records of last year. It's called Take Your Time, I'll Be Waiting. Stay updated on new releases and be the first to know about pre-orders by signing up for the newsletter at endhitsrecords.com and follow them on Instagram at end underscore hits underscore records. Okay. So listen, check back in with me in segment three and we'll catch up. I saw Jerome's dream last weekend. I saw Sumac this past weekend. There's a lot to discuss. But first, we are going to speak to Jay Robbins. Enjoy. All right. We are here now with Jay Robbins. Jay, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes, Jay. It's very exciting to have you here. I mean, you've done it all. You're doing it all. Government issue, Jawbox, Burning Airlines, Channels, your solo records. You've also recorded every band ever. (laughs) And you know what? We're going to talk about all of that. But first, I want to ask you, how are you doing? today uh i'm i'm good i'm good we have a trauma bond now thanks to all this kind of audio setup uh nonsense but um yeah no i'm i'm good i mean i'm just kind of getting ready to uh go on tour 
you know? So that's exciting, right? It, it is exciting. It When's is, the last time it. you did any kind of tour? Uh, well, I did some, I mean, I did more in 2023 than I thought I was going to do. Um, this band went out for about, it was supposed to be a 10 day tour with soul side back in March of 2023. And that was really, really fun till everybody got COVID and we all had to go home, but we got about two thirds of the way through that tour. It was really cool. And then, um, in the late in the summer, we did some dates with braid, which were amazing and even better because nobody got COVID. Um, so it's, you know, like a tour tour, it's been a very long time since I've done like a, you know, 1990s style six or eight week kamikaze mission. Um, I'm not really planning to do anything like that again. Um, would you do something like that again? I would not. <laughs> it's not likely. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh, at our age, it's better to do the, a couple weeks here, take a break, a couple more weeks. That seems to be the way. Yeah, I mean, you got to be, you you got to be um, good to yourself, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> so that you have you have to have some resources, some like something in the tank to actually be able to render the music well, you know. So that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, and I find that uh, I need. Well, I need a lot of time on my own, but I can't always get it. So I, I need to like section off and recharge my solo batteries to be able to get that out there and, and do what I need to do. Are you like that? Uh, I mean, I, it's just more kind of, it's just more kind of pragmatic for me. I mean, by in my, in my constitution, I would, I could, I could do a six week tour. Like yeah. if there were no other sort of things to think about in my life. Um, it, I don't think I would have a problem being on tour all the time, but you know, the fact is, um, I'm married, I own a house, I have a recording studio. I love recording other people's music. I want to keep all of these things going and keep them all healthy. And so, um, you know, it's just about keeping a balance, you know? Oh yeah. So I wouldn't, um, uh, I, there's there's nothing about a six or eight week tour, particularly like a six or eight week van tour, um, sleeping on people's floors. There's nothing about that that says balance to me. That says you know you're throwing your whole self at it, and there isn't much else beyond that. And um, you know, so and that's right. there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it. But I I definitely have done have done it. So I think ten days is a great a great you know ten days to two weeks is a good good amount of time to kind of be in it like that exactly plus uh, you know i'm older now i have standards you know so if someone's house is nasty or weird i'm not going to stay and i'll just spring for a hotel every night i need to much to the detriment of my bank account right right but it's it feels i mean you know i don't know it's on the plus side it's like if you sort of if you kind of hit the sweet spot then you're playing in places where you you know you have um, really long-term friendships, you know, you get to see people in person that you have maybe haven't seen for a while. And then, so staying with, staying in somebody's house is like, it's great because you're staying with friends, but you know, if, if that's not the situation, it just feels a little weird going like, Hey, who's going to, who can, can anybody put us up tonight? You know, like you're just, I'm just, it just doesn't, you know, 
I'm 56 years old. It just doesn't feel like it's that cool to ask that of somebody. No, you know, (laughs) and you know, yeah. And sometimes you want to, you have just played a show and you want to go and go to sleep, (laughs) you know, and, and not, you know, not, um, talk about the scene. (laughs) That's what this is for. Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, when the show is done, I want to go home and go to sleep. I don't drink or party anymore. I don't do any of that. Like once I'm done, I'm done. That's it. Yeah. What about you? Uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, you know, define party. (laughs) Do you drink? Like, like, all right. After a show, will you go crazy and have like five drinks and stay up till 2 a.m. ever? I mean, you know, but I do drink. I mean, it's been a long time since I was a, uh, you know, I mean, I never called myself a straight edge kid, but I didn't, I didn't drink alcohol till I was 19. Mm. And, um, uh, but you know, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, there's a time in your life maybe when you can sort of, uh, indulge in behavior that is probably self-destructive in the name of having a good time. And, you know, if you're lucky, it basically is a good time and not everybody is that lucky, but basically you, you know, I, I just think, you know, to your point there there's like i don't like to think of my i don't i don't like to sort of think of myself within a um uh you know age is not the the first thing that i want to think about when i am um you know i am not jay robbins 56 year old man you know what i mean but the fact is i am 56 so i just it's it it's it's like the difference it's like um just got to be good to yourself right that's right that's that's the point. You gotta, you gotta take care of yourself. You want to go on doing this. So, um, and there, the point of diminishing returns in terms of like, uh, you know, living after midnight and rock until the dawn is like, <laughs> it has been reached. So, you know, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't like hang out after a show and have a beer with a friend, you know? But, right. Uh, yeah. No, that makes sense. You know, as we get older, priorities shift or they should i mean for me they have my focus is now anything creative that i'm doing that's what gives me life that's what i'm focused on so while it would be nice to stay out till 6 a.m and do stupid stuff that's just not that's just not in the mix right now you know yeah i do know yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know you're doing the same thing yeah uh so you have a new solo record out basilisk Yes. It just came out. Yeah. Well, I have to say last Friday. It just came out last Friday and I have to say I love it. Uh, you know, it's 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 an excellent record. So I recommend everybody out there check it out. Well, Tell us great. about Thank you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Tell us about this record coming together. Now you you started working on it during the pandemic, yes? Uh I mean like yeah, I guess so. I mean, my first solo record came out in 2019, came out in May of 2019. And that was right in the middle of uh, a bunch of reunion activity for my old band, Drawbox. Mm-hmm. And um, I finally got to do some touring related to that record right at the end of 2019, December of 2019. But of course, you know, by March of 2020, um, 
everything was locked down and everybody was, you know, panicking. Um, and nobody really knew what was going to go on. So it's not, I think like, I mean, basically I'm sure this is probably true for most, well, I don't know how true this is for most bands. Actually, I can't, you can't generalize about most artists, most bands, whatever, but, um, I'll write songs in batches and they keep coming, but I don't think of it as like, you know, this is the record necessarily. I'm be, I, so I was writing toward what I thought would eventually be a second record, but you know, around that time, beginning of the pandemic, I was just writing and demoing. And then, uh, in uh, March of 2021, you know, uh, with the sort of the pandemic situation still seeming like, you know, everyone was in a state of confusion and not sure how everything was going to come out out of all of this. Um, I, uh, at that point I probably had five or six, six or seven songs and, um, they were pretty thoroughly demoed and I just called up, uh, Brooks Harlan who plays bass with me and Darren Zentek who played drums on the record and plays with me quite often. So long time collaborator and, and dear friend of mine, I just called them up, um, knowing that we were all going stir crazy. And, um, I just said, if we test, you know, and we're all really sure that none of us is sick, how do you feel about getting together? And we'll just set up in the studio. We'll learn these songs on the spot, flesh out the arrangements a bit more. And then we'll just drill down on them till they feel great. And then we'll hit record and go on to the next one. And so we, we did that. And we got together for two days and put together, I guess it's six, it was six songs. Um, and it was really awesome. It was like really um, rejuvenating, you know, the the feeling of doing it was just like, oh my God, these are my, I'm in the room with my friends and we're doing this thing that we love to do. And, um, you know, listen, these songs that I had in my head that were just these kind of crappy demos on a hard drive, like wow, they're really all three-dimensional now and everything is kind of coming to life. And it really was a, it was an antidote for a lot of darkness, you know? And then, so we came out of, and it was really nice because we came out of that and I felt like, wow, that feeling, that like super optimistic up feeling that we had finally getting to do this is actually in the session, you know, like I could hear it in the tracks. And um, so that carried me for a while and then I just kept writing and eventually we did another session in February of 2022 that was you know a few more songs and in between there I, I was working on the electronic more electronic driven material um and sort of trying to puzzle out what kind of record I thought I was making because I was kind of going in two almost opposite directions at the same time and I thought that's kind of a cool project to see just how much I can you know, if I can actually get these things to fold together into a coherent, some kind of coherent uh, thing, you know, because the rock songs were, are, are among the most immediate things I've done in a long time and recorded in a very immediate way, like almost no overdubbing, you know, the guitar that you hear on the record is like that, that is just like those, the rock songs with a couple exceptions are like, that's me and Brooks and Darren playing that song on that day. Oh, really? You know? 
Yeah, there's no, there's very, very little. I mean, for some of some of the songs are construction projects, you know, with layers of things. But uh, like Exquisite Corpse, um, Last War, Ray of Sunlight, uh, Deception Island, um, those for sure. And I think there's a couple more. But basically, those those are just like that's a capture. That's the band. We learned the song. We worked out some fiddly arrangement bits. We all got really psyched. We played it, played it again. It's getting better. It's getting better. Holy shit. We know this song. We really got it in our hands. Boom. Let's record it. And then that's, that's what's on the record, you know? Did, and then, did you record it at your studio? Yeah. 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 It sounds amazing. Thank you. Yeah. It, you know, reading about this record and uh, the process of you guys recording, it took me back to that time. And I was like, wow, what a crazy time. Just an entire year gone. It's really wild when you think about it and when you guys got back together or when you guys got together to start recording this thing things hadn't really opened back up yet so it was still risky to go out and do anything but you know i i had to there was things i was involved with and i was i was helping with opening some things back up so i had to do that to to get out and look it sounds like you had to as well with the music well i mean i, I mean yeah it's it is it's just it's so nuts to think about that time because yeah. i like i remember i mean you know my at that that time uh well at the first part of the pandemic my son was still living and he was a uh, um had a very very severe disability so he was at super high risk um yes. and Yet, you know, we had to go out and get groceries, you know, so I remember going and masking up and going into Trader Joe's and, you know, like sanitizing my hands every five minutes and then coming home and washing off the groceries at the door, you know, like the crazy, the kind of like excess of caution, which in, you know, in our case was really not crazy. It was really, um, you know, I mean, it really was a matter of life and death. And, um, but it is weird to think about that in the context of, you know, of right now where I think it's, I mean, I know plenty of people who are, I just actually got a message from a band that I worked with last week that they all tested positive for COVID today. So I went and did a test and I tested negative and I feel fine. And I think I, you know, knock on wood, I'm probably fine. But like, I've had COVID three times and I know loads of people who are still getting sick all the time, but collectively we've all decided that the pandemic is quote unquote over because, you know, for any number of social forces working on us and also the natural human desire to have a fucking life. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I mean, so it's really weird now. It's kind of like now, whatever, whatever your kind of headset that you have to mindset that you have to be in, in order to go and function and have a life and feel like not you know, panicked or scared or whatever, or, you know, just like, nope, things are normal. And I have my normal life now. Um, you know, I mean, normal life was never that normal to begin with, but it's like, right. uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about it. And I, it definitely like to think about, I mean, when, when the, the first sort of, I remember the first sort of, um, when, when the word lockdown was first being used, um, and not knowing how severe it might be, you know, I actually brought stuff home from the studio. I brought my computer and my speakers home from the studio and I set them up, not actually even knowing if I would have any work, 
you know? And then I thought, well, if people wanted me to mix stuff, at least it's here, I can mix at home because I don't know if I'm even supposed to go out, like, you know, to, to the studio where theoretically there is nobody there either. But it's like, I just wanted to be, you know, kind of be here in the bunker, which, I, you know, anyway, it, it's a, it's, it's just fucking crazy to look back at that time. It really is. And it was uh, not a fun year for me for a variety of reasons. But yeah, it's like you said, it's still going on, but back to work, back to life. And uh, you know what? I'm okay with it because I'll deal with COVID. I've gotten it a number of times now, but I can't sit inside for another year and I've got things going on outside. So I, I, I just have to go live. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was really touched by old soul on the record uh the song you wrote about your son Caleb was that the first time you wrote about him in in the song uh yes since his passing yes and i um wrote the music of that song a a long time ago and um it was one of the last things that um office of, my band office of future plans was one of the last things that we worked on and uh i'm i'm glacially slow writing lyrics always i i really um work them over forever much to the frustration of my erstwhile bandmates i think every band i've ever been in people are like what is taking him so long with these lyrics um <laughs> but but in the case in in callum's case i um i kind of felt because of when that when the music showed up for me i it kind of, it was one of those songs that kind of, um, it wasn't like, you know, some things you have to work at and then you kind of figure out what it's going to be. You know, it's a more of an intellect process. And that song just showed up like fully formed just by playing the guitar, you know, I, and uh, like, I don't really know where it came from and I just loved it. And I thought it had a certain thing that made me, that always made me think about Callum it, and this is while he was alive. And then I just trying to write a song to him um, was just really fucking difficult because he was an extraordinary person who defied, defied, you know, any kind of, um, you know, I don't know. I just felt like, like there's no way I can say something that's equal to the feelings that I have for this kid and right. um so i was never able to write it and you know uh after after his death it still was with me that you know i mean so this the obviously still with me and the <laughs> the song um became much more about uh just you know i don't know eventually it's just a feeling that has to come out and instead of sitting there sort of beating myself up about this turn of phrase or is that a cliche or does that, you know, like, it's just like, you know, fuck this, you've got to just get this out, you know? So, and that's been much more my, you know, kind of, uh, feeling generally is just, you know, time is short. So you have to do things. You can't, uh, be umming and eyeing over, what's exactly the right thing you know it's it's so but anyway that's that's so that song is um 
is yeah it's a special so, one and yeah that's one of those cases where it would be incredibly difficult to write because you're like how could it be perfect how could it be right you know am i doing it justice i'm sure you had thoughts like that uh finishing it up yeah no definitely you know i know grief isn't a linear process and it changes day to day minute to minute but how are you and your wife doing i just i mean my heart really goes out to any parents who had to suffer the loss of a child because back in 1998 we lost my older brother he was diabetic Oh, and wow. he was sorry yeah he was 17 years old and i just i just know what it does to families and how difficult it is to move through that and what a miracle it is if if you can retain any sort of uh normalcy after so how have you and your wife been lately no we're 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 really thank you for asking we're really we're really good i mean we're you know um the the thing is as i'm sure you know like the 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 thing about losing someone is that you're still here you know mm -hmm. and uh someone who particularly someone who really needed us so much you know i mean um he was literally physically helpless without us you know while while being a fucking incredibly sharp funny cool like you know whimsical outside the box thinking like just incredible you know i mean he it, it, it yeah i mean anyway you know uh, just in terms of his physical needs i mean he he really needed us to do almost everything for him and we taking care of him was a really full-time job and um so when you have that dimension to it also it's like that's a huge change and um but you know like we got to live and that's you know like our we're we're still here so i think we're you know uh i think we're doing really well thank you <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah i i uh i read a quote from you in an older interview and you said uh the pursuit of writing songs has gotten more urgent with time, not less. And I imagine that would be the case even more now for you, right? Because, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but after having gone through a lot of stuff in my life, my creative pursuits are what keeps me alive and what drives me the most. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, I think for sure. I mean, there's a thing, there's a thing, I mean, this is, you know, not to not to just sort of like park under a dark cloud here, but, um, right. um, you know, um, uh, Jordy Walker, guitarist of killing joke, who is a massive inspiration to me. was, I've never knew him. I never met him, but you know, he died recently and he was 60, he was 64 years old and that is not old. No, you know, and, uh, my parents died in their sixties, you know? So I'm like, I'm not, I, I, it's weird because I feel really young, you know, in my, I mean, I, in my outlook or whatever, but it's just like, there's a lot to do, you know, don't fuck around. You like, that's, that's, that's just what, that's just the bottom line, you know? Yeah. Or as Lux Interior so famously said, you got to live until you're dead. You got to rock till you see red. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. 
So you have a long history with Discord Records, and you actually worked there back in the day when everyone was still working. Was it was that was it actually at Ian's house? Yeah, that's where they started the label. It was at the the group house that they had in Arlington, and that's the house is still there, but now the label is um, in an office in the in the same block, actually. But um, but yeah, but Ian still got his office there, even though he doesn't live at that house anymore. But um, the house is sort of the it's he's sort of gradually turning it into a, an kind of an archive. Oh, nice. Yeah. How old were you when you were working there? Uh, well, let's see. I probably would have been 20. Well, let's see, probably 22, 23. Um, I mean, it's almost not, I mean, I worked there. I can't remember if I was paid to do this or not, but it wasn't even like fulfilling mail orders. It was just, um, they needed somebody to, because occasionally people would write, um, actually often people would write to discord, um, not you know, to buy a record or, or anything, but just to sort of reach out and ask questions about stuff because that, you know, there was no internet at that time for people to become instant experts on things they have no experience of. Um, so, you know, it's kind of cool that people would, that, that whole sort of wide ranging global punk network was surviving on postcards and letters. Right. And, right. um, so people were curious about certain things like, you know, you know, it might be something like they got flex your head and they were like, Oh, you know, uh, red sea. What's what band is that? Like what happened to the people from red sea? Do they have another, did they ever make another record or, you know, what, whatever happened to Fred from Beefeater, the guitar player from Beefeater, you know, are they still playing or whatever? And, and I was just a, I was just an interested nerd basically. Like I, 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 I knew about a lot of that stuff and, so I could say, oh, Fred, Beefeater broke up, but Fred plays guitar in this band, Strange Boutique now, and, you know, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. I would just either knew, knew stuff or, or knew who to ask and was interested and just was psyched to have some kind of role to play at Discord, you know? <laughs> what an interesting job to have there. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I mean, it was like one day a week. Yeah. To, to You know, just like the... The coolness was, you know, I, I was doing something, you know, in service of this label that was so important to me, you know, that was a part of a part of this much bigger thing that loomed very large in my consciousness, you know? Yeah. So we know you played bass in the final lineup of Government Issue, and then uh, Jawbox came after that. Uh, obviously, two different bands. What was kind of your trajectory with music and what were you and things you were into like were you did you start out really into hardcore punk and then get more into alternative stuff like that's what i did i i came in listening to the craziest stuff out there and then slowly i discovered emo and post hardcore and all that kind of stuff and and went in that direction how about you mm, well it's pretty different for me i mean when i was a lot younger and and up till up till i was about 16 or 17 my main love in music was um film soundtracks and uh kind of weird 20th century um classical music that's you know was a result of probably as a result of having been bullied by kids that really loved rock and roll um because i was just a i was just a super weird kid i was a real introvert and um 
when I was really young, you know, say like 10 years old, 10, 12, like early puberty or whatever, like that, um, the culture at large just seemed like it had lots and lots of rules that I would never learn, you know? And so I really lived in my head. I was like really into comic books, really into sci-fi horror movies, you know, drawing and sketchbooks all the time, drawing and painting, making stop motion animation movies. And, um, just had this like crazy interior life. And I, and I always loved, uh, like I really noticed music in films, you know, like if I loved a movie, I would latch on to like, what is the music doing? You know, how is it, how is it bringing me in? You know, I just got obsessed with it. And, and, um, and that led me to get into all the music that those film composers were ripping off, you know, people like, like, like Stravinsky and Prokofiev and sort of Russian 20th century composers and, Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein and whatever. So I was that that was really I was just obsessed with that and I was trying to teach myself to be a composer uh, because I had no formal training and I had no idea how I was going to get that. It was kind of too late to really learn, you know, if you're like a classical you know, like like people who are really successful in that world, they they're immersed in it from the time they're like 4 years old. Right. So I didn't really know where I was going to go, but I was doing all this visual art and I, I got into this art magnet program that was in my high school where you people, we were doing art like half the day. And that's where I met some of my dearest friends that I'm still friends with now. And they were kids that were into the punk scene in DC. And I think, you know, we had all this other stuff in common, like weird art, like HR Giger and, you know, surrealists and, you know, weird movies. And so they kind of took me into their fold, you know, and I started going to shows with them just because I was like, well, one thing that was, that was at that point I was, I wouldn't drink or do drugs. And I was like, oh my God, these kids think that's cool. It was like in a world where like, of course, you know, people just are going to get fucked up after school. Like that's, you know, so, so for me, I was, I was like, oh my God, what is this oasis of sanity, you know, and they don't believe there are any rules. I'm like, this, <laughs> this is I want to go there. That's where I want to be. So, um, so at first it was like, and then, you know, I, I like once you actually get into, at least for me at that point, that's the mid eighties. And like you get into that scene and it's just like, you know, not at that point. I mean, at that point, you know, things, people can't help but codify things. Right. Like right. that's just what happens. Like, as uh, some band emerges that has a sound and people glom onto it and they like it and then there's imitators and then suddenly there's an orthodoxy you know right like, oh well you don't wear those boots like what are you a poser you know like don't, <laughs> like why you got your hair like that like it's you know like so that that shit happens but in my experience at the point at which i got into punk music the thing that i saw was like fuck anything goes like there were so many different styles of weird outside music being made by people who weren't waiting for permission, you know, that was the thing that really grabbed me. So uh, like, like I liked a lot of, of hardcore bands, but I was even like, I wouldn't even use the word hardcore because it just didn't seem like, you know, the whole point of this thing, the whole point of this scene was it, at least to me, the exciting thing was it wouldn't be named. It couldn't be named. It couldn't be controlled, you know, like, um, there shouldn't be an orthodoxy. So a lot of the bands that I really loved were much weirder 
fans. Um, and but then also that was right on the cusp of you know Revolution Summer, the point at which the first wave of DC kind of self-described hardcore punks were reinventing what they were doing and they were sort of developing a they were broadening their musicality and they were broadening their ideas about their place in the world and you know just everything was kind of opening up so um so that was a really good time to be going to shows then and and you know seeing people really like ex expanding what they were doing you know it was like seeing like like watching a thing that you know started as this kind of teenage almost like impulse turn into like a real passionate all sorts of different real passionate creative pursuits you know and get get deeper you know so that's and you know at the same at that time like the probably you know i mean i had a bass but i was learning like um trying to learn to play bass by like learning john kale songs and joy division and bauhaus and stuff those that's you know but also government issue i mean that uh joyride government issue joyride record was one of the first hardcore records that i that i heard that i just like loved i mean it's one of my favorite records to this day so um so i was just learning kind of on my own and um went to college and when i first semester and when i came back that summer i just saw a flyer that gis needed a bass player and that was like a running joke in dc because they they just had this rotating cast of bass players i think other bands you know <laughs> somebody would leave and the band would break up gis was like all right you're leaving who's next you know right so um so i just went and tried out thinking i wouldn't get in but then i got in so um so that really like opened up my whole world you know yeah were you not into a ton of so-called hardcore stuff before that or did government issue kind of take you more into that world well no i mean well no no the point at which i joined gi's i had been going to shows for like a year and a half maybe mm -hmm. and you know i mean i i had favorite bands i was you know but the gi's being one of them you know right um and uh all all of the sort of revolution summer era dc bands i really loved and i was you know, I got really voracious, you know, there's no, there's no zealot, like a recent convert. Right. So I was just like at the record store all the time and trying to find records also that were from outside the DC scene, because it was like everybody that I'm friends with already knows this stuff, you know, like, where's my thing? Like, what am I going to get into? That's mine. So I was like, you know, getting into like Homestead records, you know, bands like, uh, Naked Raygun and Big Black bands from the Midwest, you know, cause I think maybe maybe because my family has roots in the Midwest, I that stuck in my mind. But also just because it was like, oh look, this underground is kind of springing up everywhere, you know. And it was a little bit more obscure. It was like people knew bands from New York and from California. They knew bands, you know, from D.C. But you know, I was like, oh, Austin, Texas, what's this? Scratch Acid, very interesting. You know, what's this? Big Boys, absolutely. You know, so um, or like all those Chicago and Minneapolis bands um so i was pretty immersed you know um but not in not not in what you would call like uh, what i think when people say hardcore now i i i think that the kind of music they mean is kind of 90 percent really not for me yeah you know? like um but uh 
but it's but that's the way that's the way most genres are really you know like 90 percent of almost every genre like you know 90 percent of country music is fucking garbage and 10 percent of it is absolutely amazing you know yeah. every, it's that way in every genre so um but uh yeah so i mean I, I, the point at which i joined gi's i just was dying to be in a band and gi had been one of my favorite bands and i was just like it was exactly the kind of thing that I would never do. Like, see this flyer, and it had little pull tabs on it. John Stab had written this flyer, and he had his put his phone number on it, you know, with the little tabs that you would tear off, you know. And it was it was up at Smash, the punk rock record store in Georgetown in D.C. And I, I saw the flyer, and I was like, this is the kind of thing I would never do. Like, just call this phone number of this dude that I don't know in my favorite band and go try out. I would never do that. Yeah, what so I much should, pressure. I should definitely do that. That was pretty much what, you know, I was like, I would never do it. So fuck it, I gotta do it. <laughs> and I was sure I would never get in. And then I got in. So I was like, all right, take me with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's something I didn't realize before I did this show. I wasn't so educated on hardcore before the nineties, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I, ima like, I imagined every band from back then sounded like Minor Threat and they just mm -hmm. always sounded like Minor Threat. But then I realized, oh no, like bands then did the same thing we did when I was coming up. You would start out one way, you would, your tastes would change, you would discover a bunch of other stuff, you would incorporate those elements into your band and your band would change and some people would like it and some people wouldn't like it and everyone grew up together. It was, you know, it was like... The same cycles back then of everything I experienced coming up. No, for sure. And I mean, I think like there's two things I think about that. One is that if you're really a creative person, there's no way you're going to stay put in one place forever. It's just not possible. Right. Um, but I also think, you know, the, some of, some of the magic, like some of that early, very early hardcore records are, you know, you apply one standard to it and it's just atrocious, but that's some of the most magical stuff there is, you know, like you can hear, you can hear this thing that's just like fighting to get out and it's, it's coming out whether you can control it or not, you know, that's just amazing to me, you know? So, I mean, I love that. It's just that when it, when things settle down into an orthodoxy, it takes a lot more to to uh, keep my attention, you know? Yeah, it, it was interesting that you said uh, there's no zealot like a recent convert. It's funny, a lot of people go through that when they get into this music. I did. And I, like Once I discovered this music and this scene, I was like, this is it. And I remember like preaching to people and saying like, oh no, what you listen to isn't real music this is real music you should listen to that and anyone who was on the outside was no good and you know we're all on the inside and all that kind of stuff right yeah no the super super tribal thing but you know i like that's that's like to me that's it, it just i would never have been quite that way about it because i it's very deeply ingrained to me and not always in a positive way that like i'm an outsider you know, that's just like, so even in a band of outsiders, it would take a lot for me to feel like, like, oh, okay, now I can, you know, and now I know where everything is. Now I know where everything's at. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust that feeling. So, um, 
but I, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely true. Like when, when something grabs you, I mean, I think that's a real pretty, pretty human thing to do. You know, you, something really sets you on fire. Like you're really gonna, you're really gonna kind of give yourself over to it. Yeah. Smart of you to recognize that and say like, I'm still an outsider. Well, you know, those feelings can be harmful too, I guess, but myself, like you, I was an outsider and interested in many of the things you were growing up, comics and H.R. Geiger and film and all that stuff and made fun of in school and by myself a lot. So when I found my band of misfits, I became uh, radicalized. I was like, yes, we're it and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, another thing I didn't think about before doing this show was that there was a music industry pre-Nirvana, right? Because <laughs> I really fell in love with guitar-driven music when I was in fourth grade and bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and Soundgarden were exploding. And, you know, there was a whole industry before that and things changed, I guess, after that. So Jawbox existed in both timelines. Did you end up on Atlantic Records as part of a feeding frenzy uh, in the scene or how did that happen? Yeah, I would say that we were we were uh, caught in the, uh, you know, pulled along in the Nirvana, the post-Nirvana tide, right? Like, uh, I think it was a moment, it was a really magical moment. I feel like timing somehow worked out amazingly for us because we were really, we were so um, staunch about being an independent band. Like, we really believed and i i mean we still believe really strongly in the value of an an independent creative scene you know like it's funny because i think people don't i think now you it's hard for people to use a word like underground without sort of laying on a little bit of irony you yeah. know but um but i believe that there has to be an underground and i really believe that we were you know I mean, and it's funny because it's not as if Discord sort of set itself up in one way. It's not as if Discord or the DC scene or whatever set itself up in these kind of political terms as an opposition to, you know, the menace of late capitalism or something. Like, uh, I think there are people who would have thought that idea was laughable even, you know, in the 80s. But, you know, so I think Discord was just like, an exercise i mean i'm not going to speak for ian but my impression is it was an exercise in common sense you know like why wait for somebody else to do a thing for you that you can do you know why do it their way when it's insanely wasteful and exploitative and um you know it's so much about people screwing each other over when we're down here we've been helping each other out this whole time like we could just keep helping each other out like that all which is which has got a real serious political dimension, right? So, um, so I, I always really believed in that, and we did as a band. And then it kind of came to a point where, you know, we were getting interest from major labels, and it was a little bit like, here's an opportunity that's not going to come again to have a different set of experiences, and let's see if we can bring all of our old, all of the things that we care about, let's see if we can bring that with us when we take this, 
you know, if we take this different step, like we'll take this step if we can, to some extent, bring along all these other things that we care about that are anathema to this sort of world of major label showbiz structure, you know? So that's what we thought we were doing anyway. That's what we wanted to be doing. And, um, you know, but I mean, everything kind of lined up really, really well. Like our A&R guy was Mike Gitter and we felt good about signing with him, particularly with Atlantic Records, because he had come out of the Boston hardcore scene. Um, you know, Kim knew him from when she, she grew up in New Hampshire and she used to go to shows in Boston. He had this fanzine, Triple X. I knew him from, from when I had played in GIs. So he was somebody from the same background. You could say Discord Records to him and he understood he really understood what that meant. And so that was one thing that, that we were like, okay, here's, this is not somebody who's just pretending to understand where we come from. This is somebody that comes from the same place. And also it was at a moment where I think, you know, when things come, when things come up from the grassroots and the big corporate structures try to exploit that and sort of grab a hold of it and wring the money out of it, there comes a point, you know, there, as, as, which is what happened with Nirvana, right? Yep. Like, did they think it was going to be as massively huge as it was? Probably not. And then like, whoa, it's so huge. They're like, shit, we don't know what this is, but we could make a lot of money off of it. And I think we sort of entered that fray right at the moment where the, the, them not knowing what it was, it was peak not knowing what it was. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, so we got an extraordinary deal where we got to pick our producer, we got to manage ourselves, um, we got to, you know, basically we got to call. Maybe I won't say every shot, but we got to call about ninety-five percent of the shots, and we got a ridiculous budget, like, and we got much more, uh, much more of a push than I think we even realized at the time. And the fact is, we were never going to be a hit-making band. It's just not the kind of music we made. But, um, you know, Savory is not a song that, it's not Taylor fucking Swift, you know, <laughs> like it's just not, it's not structurally, thematically, musically in any regard, a kind of a, a hit song, but they treated it like it was for about three months, you know? So I, I, we really had a very, and then at the end of it all, they just let us go. They didn't keep us in limbo in sort of like contractual prison. So I would say we had one of the better experiences on a major label and, you know, and then we also, we're, we, um, got to know the people like the actual sort of ground level people that were working at the label. Um, we, we actually spent a lot of time going and visiting the offices of Atlantic records and, you know, being human with other humans and there and realizing that those people at that level are not like corporate turds, you know, they're just like people that were lucky to get a job in music because they love music. You know, they all came out of like college radio or whatever. So there were a lot of like really genuine people kind of in the trenches at Atlantic that we could really relate to. And, and so, you know, we made, we made some good friends, you know, and it's that funny also because at that time we were, I mean, I was like tied in knots about the idea of selling out. Like it, it freaked me out. I was super worried about it and we all were to an extent, but I was like, you know, really sweating it and it's very funny now in 2024 because i don't think anyone i think the term selling out it's another it's like the like underground you see people say it with with uh you know air quotes yeah 
It doesn't exist anymore. Certainly yeah. not like it did back then. But that sounds, yeah, that sounds like it was the perfect time to do the major label thing. It hadn't been fully corrupted yet. It sounds like you didn't have to go through any of the common stories you hear like, oh, this A&R guy brought us on and now he's gone and now everyone who supported us is gone and they won't support the record and they won't give us the masters back. Like, it sounds like you had a pretty good experience. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it's it's insane how 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 good it was, how much better it was even than I think we realized, like what we really threaded the needle, I think, you know, yeah. and um, I'm very grateful to the, fates or the gods of whatever you know for that <laughs> and um but you know i mean i have to say though the whole enterprise when when you say the major label thing hadn't been corrupted yet i i mean it's it was corrupt from the get-go it's just that we good point we lucked in at a at a moment of grace with a specific <laughs> set of people and specific set of circumstances that let us kind of glide through that relatively unscathed Right. You you got in before they fully wait, let's say this. You got in at a like like you said, at a time where there was still a lot of unknowns. So you didn't just get dragged over the coals and get every right. everything. Right. No one out no one could say with certainty what it was that was no one in that in that sort of corporate echelon of decision making could say with certainty what would what would be a massive success. Yeah. So for a brief and shining moment, they were prepared to throw resources at things that they didn't understand. And that didn't last very long. And so that's, you know, you know, cause we, we also experienced the fallout, you know, when the, the grunge, the grunge wave finally broke, you know, <laughs> when it, when it, when it, or I guess that, I guess, uh, I've got my metaphors wrong. The, the tide went out, you know, yeah. like when they really realized they weren't going to be squeezing any more money out of it, then everything just you know, and it had, unfortunately, it had a knock-on effect in the, in the underground music scene too, I think. I think people sort of had a, I think there was a general feeling like, you know, a, a, there was a feeling, there had been a feeling of optimism that like, oh, you know, I'm, I love my band. Maybe I can make a living in music and, you know, maybe I can go here and do this and have all these other, you know, just sort of ride this wave and then the wave is gone and um and i think that the experience of the 90s had managed to damage there managed to be some collateral damage in the infrastructure of the genuine underground you know so when yeah. we kind of went out of everybody's sales a little bit well in 2003 i know my friends myself and my friends band still thought you could be in a band and make a living, which I guess maybe was still possible at that time. But it feels like now in 2024, that's really impossible unless you're independently wealthy. Right, right. Or you or you just, uh, you know, it depends what kind of living you want to make. <laughs> yeah. Or like, like no, well, but not, I mean, not even that's, I shouldn't be so flippant. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it is, it's like, I mean, I mean, it's a bigger problem. It's not a punk problem. It's like a cultural problem, right? Like the art, like the idea of, of, creativity and the arts as a um as an essential component of a society is like insanely undervalued and it's only seen through the lens of superstardom and celebrity it's not it, it's other it's just a you know it's like everything else it just turned into a kind of monster kind of blown up version of what it was when when i 
was a teenager and you know you'd have relatives that would go like oh you're in a band huh when you can when am i going to see you on tv when are you going to be famous <laughs> you know and you'd be like it's not that kind of band <laughs> you were but, on tv yeah. though did you ever show any of your uh, relatives your 120 minutes appearance or the jimmy fallon appearance or anything and say look there you go yeah actually i mean how are you not going to do that right <laughs> <laughs> how are you not going to tell your uncle bud you know oh yeah switch on switch on the TV tonight. We're on Jimmy Fallon, you know, take that <laughs> uncle bud. <laughs> did, uh, did that 2009 reunion happen specifically for the Jimmy Fallon show? Uh, well, it happened. It was sort of a bad, uh, what happened was, um, we had gotten the for your own special sweetheart back from Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about reissuing it on our own label, DeSoto records. And, uh, and I thought, oh, this is great. You know, we, we, it was an opportunity to remaster it. We, we, we always really loved that record, but felt like maybe the low end was a little shy on it. It has a real specific kind of sound that doesn't, it isn't really like a lot of other records. And I always loved it. But then if I had one regret about it, I was like, oh, it doesn't feel very physical. So we got Bob Weston to remaster it and, it's much more, the remaster is much more robust sounding. And that was really exciting. And at that point, we didn't think we would re, we would do a reunion because it just seemed like everybody was super busy um, with all sorts of real life things and, you know, living in different places. So we didn't think we really had the energy to give to a reunion tour. But then, but we did hire a publicist um, for the reissue. And she kind of went behind our back because she knew that the person who was booking the um, music for Jimmy Fallon had been a college radio programmer who was a really big fan of Drawbox. So she went to him and she was like, how would you, what would you think about having Jawbox on? And he was like, oh, that would be great. And then she came to us and she was like, um, they want you to play on Jimmy Fallon. And we were like, they what? <laughs> really? <laughs> what the you know so i think we were so blindsided by it and and then we were like well that we could do because if we you know we're not going to learn 20 songs and be good at them at that time we didn't think we would we're like but we could work up four songs and and really do it justice you know that that bit we could do so that's what we did that was our version of a reunion tour to support the reissue it was just like well, okay if we can do that probably reach more people than we would if we went out on a tour anyway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm, yeah, at that time, I was like, either Jimmy Fallon or his people have good taste in music because he would get a lot of cool musical guests on there. Yeah, no, and they were, it, it's funny. I mean, that was a great experience too. That was not a, that just didn't feel, that was the least showbiz feeling experience of any showbiz experience, just in terms of like getting there and feeling like everybody was psyched everybody that worked on that show seemed like they were psyched to be a part of it. And they were like, everybody was just nice. And it wasn't like, you know, weird and sort of like overly air conditioned and corporate feeling. Once you actually got into the, the space there, it was like, no, this is a kind of creative environment with people who are psyched about what they're doing. You know, why did Jawbox end initially? Uh, it, I think, I think we were a little bit deflated I mean, if I'm honest, I have to be honest and say we 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 were a little bit deflated by uh, being dropped by Atlantic. 
but I don't think that was the, that, I mean, I know that wasn't the whole reason. I think that contributed to it. It was like a, a whole bunch of reasons, but the number one reason was that Zach went uh, back to college, Zach, our drummer, who um, is just not replaceable. You know, he's just got, um, I mean, you know, he, he really, when he joined our band, he really transformed the sound and the kind of work working methods of our band. And, um, it fostered a lot of growth happened creatively when, when Zach joined the band and, um, and one thing that was true is a lot of, a lot of times we were writing around rhythms that he came up with, you know, he's, he was not keen to wait around for someone to show him a song and he sometimes wasn't keen to play the song that you showed him. You know, he, he tended to want to play his version um, <laughs> and that would take the song in a totally different direction. Or, you know, a lot of times, probably more often, he would be composing beats. He'd be down in the basement just writing on the drums and you'd hear these fantastic rhythms and be like, oh shit, okay, let's put something to that and then sort of scramble to, to, to create something around that skeleton you know um so it it's like our whole way of working and the whole sound of the band just wouldn't have been the same if we if he had left and we tried to get someone else to fill his shoes it just didn't seem possible so i think you know um that really that really was it those those couple you know and and kim and bill uh, were together then. And I think they, I think there's a, there's just a confluence of things. It was like, you know, the whole, um, end of the, whatever that boom musical boom was in the, in the nineties and the feeling of, wow, we've done an awful lot as a band. Like maybe that's cool. Maybe it's a good end point. And, you know, there was a point, I think people do this a lot too, who have been in, they've thrown themselves at the, the music thing in their 20s and there's always a little voice in the back of your mind going like you know this is a it's great that you're that you still get to do this but like what happens when you grow up <laughs> you know yeah. and um so i mean i knew a lot of people who did that who were like real passionate about the music they were making but then they were like oh shit i gotta have a life you know or whatever it might be they were just you know in their 30s Everybody did some version of like, well, it's time to put aside childish things. And I could never really do that <laughs> because it's not, you know, I never thought of it as a childish thing. I just, uh, you know, this is just the pursuit that's kind of ruled my life. But, um, but collectively as a band, I think we were going through some of that. And uh, so it just seemed like a good time to, rather than having it drag on, just be like, well, we can look, look back at what we did and basically, you know, be pretty stoked. So good, good time to, good time to call it, you know. Did you start up Burning Airlines pretty soon after that? Yeah, almost immediately. I started writing songs and I thought like, I invited Bill to be in it because I thought a lot of times in, in Jawbox, the way that we would write, because he and I were both guitarists, it, it, it ended up being musically kind of competitive in a way that um, sometimes used to be really hard to negotiate and you know and it would end up with really cool things but it's just like you know in the end the end result was often cool but the process was sometimes contentious and not always satisfying you know um so 
but meanwhile, I think Bill is an incredibly gifted dude and like really, really great in, you know, in, in, in all respects. And I was like, wouldn't it be great to do a band with Bill where we weren't covering the same territory, you know, where we each had our own kind of like, you know, the guitar lives in this range, the bass lives in that range, and we can easily complement each other instead of competing for the same sonic space, you know? Yeah. So, um, so I asked Bill if he wanted to start that up and that was really, really great, but he didn't have the time to, to devote to it in the way that I wanted to. So, I mean, we did one record and then, um, he left and Mike Harbin joined on bass, who's also immensely gifted and a really great collaborator, you know, and Mike was, Mike did have the energy to go. So, you know, go tour and, um, be much more of a road warrior. So that was, that was cool. That, that enabled a lot of things for, for burning airlines. How old are you around that time? Let's say 99, 2000 in the middle of that band. Uh, so, so let's see if we got together around 97, so I would have been 30. So at that time you still just want to play and tour full time. Pretty much. I mean, I had a, I had a job in graphic design, but it was very, my boss was really cool. He was very loose. He was excited to have rock and roll in the office, <laughs> you know, it was a small company. <laughs> yeah. So, so he gave me a lot of latitude to go do things that, you know, um, that was, it was nice to have that situation, but, and I was doing a lot of studio work. That was the beginning of the, toward the end of Jawbox is when I started getting involved with making other, you know, making records helping other helping other people make their records and i loved that and i was like well if i if this if if i'm going to have a job this is the job i want um which you know that's not a job either it's a crazy it's also an obsession but um but yeah so you know all i all i knew was i just wanted to keep be, being immersed in creativity and that if i stopped doing that uh it would be very bad and I wouldn't, I wouldn't like it. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, Mission Control, the first record from Burning Airlines is when you first got on my radar. I must have been, you know what? I don't even know how I discovered it or when or how old I was. I was young. I must have been 19, 20, maybe somewhere around there. But that's how I discovered you. And then I circled out to everything else from there. So uh, number one, amazing band and record i'll just say that thank you and number two what was the approach with burning airlines because it's a it's different from jawbox like was there well it, was it there a different help. approach or is there yeah, things no, you wanted I to mean, do differently uh i mean there must be right there always is every every band is different and yeah i think but but it couldn't help but be different because like i said with with jawbox by virtue of the particularly because of of zach's approach um you know, Jawbox had a had a a way of writing that um, for me, if I was writing, you know, I tend to write whole songs in my head. Not, I mean, lyrics it takes for fucking ever, but but musically, um, things come together pretty quickly. And for better or worse, I I I hear bass parts and guitar parts and drum parts, and I I want to know the arc of a whole song. I don't like just like it's not it's no use to me to just come up with a part it's cool for i'm not denigrating it i'm not saying that's a shitty way to write but for me if i just come up with a part it it's it's like it's who cares it's about what what it's gonna where it's gonna 
take you when it goes to the next thing and how all the pieces will fit together. So that's always how things come together in my head. And, you know, sometimes I'd luck out and Jawbox would come up, would end up having a song, you know, I'd bring a song and it would sort of survive the process pretty much intact. But very often it was a matter of transformation and, and sort of the group working things out. And then I'd kind of get to be the traffic cop at the end because I'm the one who's got to sing the thing. Yeah. But like, you know, the traffic cop of the arranging or whatever. And so, um, whereas, you know, playing with Pete, Pete Moffat is someone who thinks the same way as I do. Like he wants to hear the song, you know, and the song is not necessarily about a, having a specific beat. You know, you want to have the right beat for the song. You want to, you want the drums to be cool, but the song is almost never about like the beat is not the song, you know? Whereas for Jawbox, I would say even listening to some of Jawbox stuff now, I could go, the beat is the song. Yeah. And um, so uh, so that was, you know, that was kind of like the, the, you know, in some, the, yeah, that was just like, okay, so someone is a songwriter. The songwriter will bring the song, the band will flesh out the arrangement, and that's how we're going to do this band. And, and, you know, every now and then we had a, we would write out of a jam, but a lot of times it was like unexpected jamming like we have the song pacific 231 that's like pete was doing these kind of like exercises in the basement that i was like fuck what is that rhythm that's insane and i just ran down and started playing along to it and then this song kind of fell out that turned out to be one of our best songs but oh yeah but uh, that wasn't that wasn't anything before pete started playing that beat you know that just kind of showed up on the spot so but for the you know but there's a lot of songs that were much more like here's the here's the verse, here's the chorus, here's the form, let's flesh out the details, you know? Yeah, it's great stuff, and I I, uh, I borrow from it in my own writing, too. You know that thing you do on guitar where you you hit uh, the B string, right? And But you hit the the high E open, so you mm -hmm. get like that dissonant thing. I call that the jawbox guitar sound. <laughs> <laughs> I use that all the time. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um... Burning Airlines, why does that band end? I know you had some trouble because September 11th happens and the band is called Burning Airlines and there was a lot of reactionary yeah. stuff happening. Like it, it, I, re I remember a whole list of songs that were banned from the radio and I remember the whole stupid Freedom Prize thing. And I right. remember when Lord of the Rings Two Towers came out a year later, they were like, no, we can't call it Two Towers. But it's like this book was written 50 years ago. Do you remember that terrible song that Paul McCartney did that was called Freedom? No. <laughs> the worst song that Paul McCartney ever wrote, but somehow it was okay because it was all about, you know, fighting to defend your freedom from the whatever. You know? Yeah. But but uh uh but yeah, I mean I think I think that that did clobber us, you know, just we were on tour with rival schools and that that happened in the middle of the tour and and um you know we we I remember getting on stage and just saying like and but it's just it's insane it's like we didn't just name our band on september 12th yeah. you know like oh i know it would be really funny like what are what, are you a fucking idiot no we just like like it was just super bad luck you know and um so uh but we you know we made it through that tour but then more broadly that just everyone was so the you know i mean whatever about the impact on a particular band i mean the the fact is like the whole culture it was a bit like covid right like like yeah. everybody suddenly just had the air knocked out of them everybody's 
knocked on their ass by this thing and to try and pretend that you were going to go on doing a band, you know, business as usual, like, you know, fulfill your plans that you had already made. It's a bit naive. And so unfortunately what happened, the worst thing about it was, um, we had been to Japan, uh, and, uh, we had, there was this band, this Japanese band, a really wonderful band called not N A H T. And they, they had done, they had sponsored a tour for, uh, kerosene 454 and blue tip. And, um, which was something that was extremely rare in Japan at that time, like to do a DIY punk tour. Um, you know, everything was much more showbiz, you know, big clubs, booking agent, like stay in a hotel kind of thing, but not, um, invited us over. And so we did a DIY tour in Japan with them and they were just, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful, amazing experiences of my whole life. Like getting to know those guys, watch them play. There were such a, all the bands we played with in Japan were so great. And just to be there and be like, oh my God, you know, like music got me here. Like this fellowship of music, like brought us all the way around to the other side of the world. Like just was so great. And so we thought like, you know, these guys in Knot are, have done this for our, for, for us and for our friends' bands. You know, they're always the, they've been the generous people who, who brought us all the way to Japan. Like, let's return the favor and do something cool for them. And we'll do a U.S. tour, you know, we'll get them to the USA because they wouldn't otherwise have been able to come. So, um, we had a East coast tour booked with them. Uh, I forget if it was September or October, but basically, um, not a total wash, you know, it had good, it had good moments and bad moments, but just the fact that we, we brought them, you know, kind of into the middle of something that wasn't really working out. And then after that, we carried on, they, they were here for like a week or so. And then we carried on South. And then when we, when we played in the South, it was like, you know, we just had incredibly shitty shows. And I think we were all just exhausted and we had a bit of a blow up and then we, uh, decided we were going to take six months off and then we never came back from it. <laughs> so is there a future for burning airlines? The people need it. I need it. <laughs> well, I think the closest thing you're going to get is that, uh, because Pete and I play together now in, in this band, um, because Pete's the, the live drummer, he's been the live drummer in all 99% or 95% of Jay Robbins band shows. And he played drums on unbecoming, so Pete and I, you know, have a pretty tight musical association and anytime that we're playing together, we, you know, we'll, we'll put Burning Airlines songs in the set. Ooh. So, um, so we've been playing them, you know, just like we've been playing, uh, Pacific 231 and Wheaton Calling and Escape Engine, um, because they're fun to play. I miss yeah. playing them, you know? So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't think there's, I don't think burning airlines reunion is in the cards but i think those songs still get played some of those songs get played pretty regularly that's good to hear that's good to hear in addition to all the great bands you've been in and all the great music you've put out you've also recorded a lot of amazing music as well i read uh in your recent interview with norman at uh antimatter that he asked you to pr be producer for 
Texas is the reason for one of their recordings. Is that true? Did that happen? Yeah, that's probably the that's probably the beginning, really. Of I mean, the first first band I ever went into the studio with was Kerosene Four Fifty Four. Um, right after they moved from California to DC, and um, I just I knew a couple of those guys, and they were asking my advice about where to record, and I was like, oh my god, you should record where we did where we did our, we hit those not long after we had done for your own special sweetheart. And I was like, the studio has this amazing room. You guys would love it. And then they asked me to come in with them. And, um, and I think a similar thing happened with Texas where, you know, because those guys were fans of Jawbox, and then they knew that I had helped out, um, kerosene 454. So they were like, Oh, well, Jay is a, which looks like Jay is, going in the studio with bands so maybe we should see if he'll um produce this record so that was do you know who you are um and that's that was the really so that's the second record that i ever produced but i was like uh and then because of because of having worked with texas then they were friends with promise ring and promise to so the promise ring guys invited me to get involved with their records you know so things really went very organically from one project to the next wow but, um and you know at the point at which i worked with texas i was not an engineer i was just a, a more of like an aesthetic consultant slash coach you know i'd always like every time i'd ever go in the studio in any band of mine i was definitely like the guy who was hassling the engineer like why are you using that mic why are you putting it there what's this you know what's what does compression do blah 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 um but uh drew mazurik who was the engineer of on for your own special sweetheart he actually engineered that uh texas record and you know he and i had a little a bit of a partnership going where when people you know he he, he engineered a couple of records that i produced initially but you know after a while i was kind of like i don't want to just be a person with opinions you know i, I yeah. need to I need to be the 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 i need to be doing the technical work I, I won't feel good about myself otherwise but like um but i also had a lot of like when we recorded and jawbox had recorded uh, sweetheart we had a long time in the studio with ted nicely who was a very exacting producer and i learned a lot just from working with him because he really got me to focus on things that i hadn't been paying attention to you know about my guitar playing about the ideas about timing and tuning and you know just really listening in a real deep focused way you know so that was like a, a, a pretty intense education that uh, I then felt like I had some things to offer, you know. Is there any specific producing you can remember from Do You Know Who You Are? That's one of my favorite records and bands of all time. So I'm just, I'm just curious about it. I mean, uh, I mean, I remember working with Garrett a lot on voc things, vocals and things like harmonies. You know, we, we wrote, uh, uh, I mean... We basically worked out those harmonies, all the harmonies on the record together. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the biggest, you know, that's the biggest thing where I can point to that and say, okay, the, we, we really worked the vocals to get something that he would be proud of and to kind of flesh out the songs and, you know, make them more, even more dynamic than they already were. And, and then probably the other, you know, the other stuff is all like pretty quotidian. It's like just you know that we were not using a click track that's that's once again that's the band live in the studio pretty much for the most part and um 
you know, apart from vocals and a, an overdub here or there, that's just those guys playing those songs. That was like a five day record. From oh, really? And yeah. Um, you know, I think it was recorded in three and a half days and mixed in a day and a half, something like that. And, wow. um, um, you know, so a lot of it was just like, well, we're not using a click track and you guys are kind of speeding up. So maybe it's, maybe let's, we should do one more take and try and just keep it, keep the, keep the energy, you know, keep the, the tempo to a certain level, you know, instead of letting it get away from you, all that kind of like real practical stuff, you know, did you tune up? Yeah. And then, but you know, there was enough time to put on rain and blood and do stage dives off the mixing desk. I definitely remember <laughs> that. Um, but you know, for the most part, it was just like, wake up, go get a bagel, start recording. Oh, look, it's one in the morning, crash out, wake up the next day, do the same thing again. Oh my God, the record's done. <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You've done a lot of classic records. You recorded the last two Jets to Brazil records as well? I, I worked on all the Jets to Brazil records. Oh, all of them. Okay. Yeah. Wow, but you know, first first one in a similar capacity where I was a producer and collaborator and kind of like you know Fifth Beetle a little bit, played a little guitar on it. Um, like I think the guitar at the beginning of Chinatown is actually me. Um, but uh, but Stuart Sykes was the engineer um, on that record when we did it at this awesome place in. Uh, Memphis that doesn't unfortunately doesn't exist anymore that burned burned down but um yeah and then the other two I uh engineered um Chef Sanoff mixed the second one and then I recorded and mixed the last one recorded and mixed that's my favorite of theirs I think perfecting loneliness that's an, an oh, all-time awesome. classic for me it's I mean all their I think all their records are great oh yeah well, that's got to be good, right? Like, if, you, if you're ever having a bad day, you can just look back on every band you've been in, every band you've recorded, and say, what a legacy. Well, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have been in close proximity to a lot of um, really great creative people sort of really engaging with their creativity at the in kind of peak moments, you know? I mean, I'm yeah. really, I don't take any of that for granted. It's really cool, and it's always really inspiring. It's like, that's 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 what I love. You know, it's like, like you gotta, you gotta create, you know, you it like when you, and at least for certain people, right? Like it's, it's, you have to, and for the world at large, like you've got to fucking create and you've got to believe in it. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm really, really lucky to get that message. You know, every time I've gotten to work with almost anybody, there's that element of that, you know, you see somebody who's just like giving what they've got and everything they've got to this vision or this voice or this thing that, that won't stay put, that's got to come out, you know? So I like, I mean, I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, profoundly lucky that I've been in that position, you know, to be, to, to, uh, experience that and, you know, with some really great, really great people, you know? And really great, really great bands where like there's a there's there's some real feeling between these people. They're really doing something together, you know. So. Yeah, Jawbox, you toured supporting Stone Temple Pilots at one point. Is that true? Yes, that was our big major label, uh, you know, uh, circus party, whatever you want to call <laughs> it. But uh, 
It was Were really they touring fun. the the first album? Uh, it was the Purple tour. Oh wow! So it was with uh, they headlined and Meat Puppets were the middle band and we were the the baby band. But they were really nice to us. That was one of them. That was another. It's another like, how did we get so lucky? Because you always hear about the little band gets shot on. You know. Yeah. Like oh, it's it's the classic thing is like the 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 little band on the tour just gets you know that it's always miserable. But in that case, it literally when we showed up at that tour, the the tour manager kind of more or less called a meeting and was just like, you know what? We're all going to be living together for six weeks and we could make each other miserable or we could all agree that we're just going to have a great time and that this is an awesome thing to do and let's have fun. So I think we should, that's what we should do, you know? And it, so it was very, it was really, um, it was a hard slog because it was a, a bus tour for the other bands, but we, we were a van band. We did not get a bus. So um, we had some long drives that we just had to grit our teeth and, you know, a couple of times we just barely made it in time for our set or whatever, but they were super supportive and sweet, especially the DeLeo brothers, the the bass player and guitar player, uh, Robert and Dean were really just like, you know, they hung out, they were nice. We geeked out about music because they're just, they're music nerds, you know, the way that, that we are. So it was like, let's talk about gang of four. Let's talk about King Crimson, you know, like let's just, they were just cool. Yeah. They were really, nice. it was, it was, um, a much cooler experience than I expected it to be. And it was nice. great. We got to play places that I never would, would have dreamed of playing, you know, like we played at Red Rocks. Oh, really? That's not going to happen again in my life. Like that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Would you see yeah. Scott at all? Or was he like away most of the time? He he was the first person who greeted us at the first show. The first show was at the Gorge, which is a place in uh, Idaho, but it's like just over. No, no, no. It's in uh, sorry. It's in eastern Washington State, but it's just across a river from uh, Idaho. Right? Am I making that up? Do I am I failing my geography test? Anyway, it's basically <laughs> it's way down way out in eastern Washington State, in the middle of nowhere. It's really beautiful, uh, beautiful place, but um, it's almost like a giant stage in the middle of nowhere. And we got there and went behind the stage. And the first person who walked up to the van was Scott Weiland, and he knew all our names. And he was like, he was like, he was like Jawbox, right? Man, so happy to have you guys on the tour. Thanks, thanks for doing this with us, right? So nice, so lovely. And then we never saw him again. <laughs> and I think. I can't help but think that he was kind of scoping out whether we seem like the kind of band that might have drugs, <laughs> but I don't, you know, I can't say that for sure. I don't want to be a, a dick, you know, the guy's no longer with us, but, uh, but that was the impression I had because after that he was nowhere to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That's yeah. classic. Yeah. I, I, I can, uh, I can appreciate that as a, as a former purveyor of such things myself. Yeah. Yeah. You're always scoping out who's got it, who's does, who doesn't, <laughs> who's doing it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's fine. I think there were two different tours going on really for, you know, for uh, though, like I said, amazing, amazing times and really lovely supportive scene. But I think the, I think the Stone Temple Pilots Meat Puppets bus tour was a very, very different from the was very different from the Jawbox Van tour. Oh yeah, there is a lot of like late night partying and things that went on unbeknownst to us, and it's better off that we didn't know. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So Jawbox reunited again. For real. Wait, I don't want to say for real, but you are no, right. Jawbox you reunited. Jawbox reunited longer in 2019 <laughs> and we actually did a tour. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jawbox is not, in, in a sense, Jawbox is not broken up. I mean, we haven't, it's not like we've decided that we're never going to go back and do anything. I mean, we have some, um, some things in the works toward the end of the year, but I don't think we'll do anything on the scale of the, the 2019 tour again. Yeah. And, um, uh, but that was really great. I mean, you know, we, we took that really seriously and then, um, we, you know, COVID really threw a wrench into it. Uh, but I think that ultimately, you know, everything kind of worked out the way it's supposed to, I, I suppose. But, um, but, you know, we took that very seriously because that was like, you know, having done the thing in 20, 2009 or 2010, whenever it was, and saying, oh, well, we're not going to do this because we can't do justice to it. When we decided to do it, which was very much a matter of like, you know, it was popping up in everybody's minds like, oh, maybe we sh could, maybe we should, shouldn't we? That might be pretty fun. It'd be awesome. I don't know. And then you kind of have these little inklings and you're like, no one's getting any younger. Like when you're 62, you are not going to be able to do this this <laughs> way, you know, not job, job box at least. I mean, even if we're just talking about Zach, like playing the way that he plays is just, it's debilitating. You know, I mean, he just throws himself at the drums with this kind of intensity that like, you know, he was breaking kick drum pedals, like the actual footboard of the pedal, like routinely, just <laughs> like, it's like a war up there for him, you know? So, um, so anyway, we were just like, you know, let's, if we're going to do it, let's fucking do it. So that's, that was why we did it. And we took it, you know, we, we really, we really prepped and we had a wonderful time. It was really amazing. And then. COVID happened and we had sort of derailed it. And when we, but there were still things that we didn't get to do. Like we, we had uh, been invited to play Primavera Sound in Barcelona, which is like a dream of a lifetime, right? Mm. Didn't get to do that. And then as things started opening up again, the opportunity came back and a couple of other things that we hadn't gotten to do yet. And we were like, well, we want to do them. But at that point, Bill had moved to Vermont, uh, and he was kind of like, you know, I think 2019 was great. I think I'm, I think I've, I can go out on a high note. So I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really up for, for joining you guys again and ramping up from zero, but please, you know, find somebody to fill my spot. Like, please go ahead. You know, he really, we had his blessings to, to carry on and, and, um, do them without him. So, uh, we invited Brooks Harlan, who is, you know, has, played bass with me for ages. Who's one of my dearest friends since I've moved to Baltimore and a really amazing musician. Um, and, uh, somehow though he already has an incredible band war on women, that is his main musical pursuit. You know, he's been able to do music with me for, you know, God, probably like 13 years now, but like, so I thought if anybody is equal to this task, Brooks is equal to it because he's just, that kind of guy. He's just super sharp. He's got a, a great ear. He's dedicated. He knows his shit. It just, I mean, there's no downside. So we invited him and he said yes. And so we did Jawbox now is me and Kim and Zach and Brooks. Um, and we got to play Primavera. We got to do some shows with Jawbreaker, did some great stuff in 2022. 
Um, but um, once we sort of, we, we kind of, we did hit the end of the list. You know, we had a list of things that we wanted to do and we got to the end of the list and we were kind of like, what's next? And um, writing new material, at least up till this point, has not seemed like something that we're really able to do because we have to write collaboratively because of that's the dynamic of the band. It's not a band that I can bring songs to and just say, here's the song, let's learn it. You know, it's a, it's a band where things have to, have to kind of come together organically in a way that only really is, it's very, you know, it works, let's say it works a lot easier when you're in your twenties and everybody lives in a group house together and you can all go in the basement and jam till your death. You know? Yeah. But you know, Zach lives in Brooklyn. Kim lives in DC. Brooks is certainly very busy building and designing amplifiers, playing with war on women. Um, and, uh, and I'm really busy because I'm working on, uh, I have the studio, you know, so, so it's just like trying to find a way to get everybody focused and, and, um, even just being able to afford to kind of give ourselves the space to create something new doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem all that likely, not impossible, but it doesn't seem it's, it just seems like, uh, a little bit of a tall order. So, but the band is not, is not broken up. You know, we just have always said like, we'll, we'll do this if we have opportunities to do things that seem really great, or if, you know, the feeling strikes that like, you know, we're going to come up with something and we can make new material then we would. So, but, um, that's, that's where Dropbox is at. Yeah. It sounds like it would be, uh, difficult to write remotely the way you guys write. Like, yeah, are you I, just going to get a drum track and just start writing stuff over it like that? Right. I feel like that I would mean, be we, hard. We, we tried a little bit of that and it didn't really, nothing ever really took off. Yeah. You know, um, so, so it's, you know, which is, which is fine. Cause I mean, I think for Zach, like the, to fulfill his creative, um, drive, you know, he has a project that he's been working on called new freedom sound. That's much more in line with the sort of musical inspirations that really drive him. You know, it's more kind of modern classical slash jazz, um, a collaborative, you know, thing. And, um, I mean, that's the other thing that's weird to contemplate. It's like, what kind of music would Jawbox write in 2024? Um, I'm, I can, I'm reasonably certain that, um, whatever, I mean, I'd be interested to see how it all panned out, but I kind of think people that were really into Jawbox because of how novelty sounded or because of how for your own special sweetheart sounded, which are two like wildly different records. I, th I think that music that we made now might be completely different and there's no guarantee that it would grab anybody in the same way, you know, right. Probably be radically different from the kind of music that we made before. Right. We wouldn't come back and write another novelty that, that album sounds very 1992. Well, I mean, yeah. And it's, that's a, that's a record that was largely dictated by guitarists, you know? Yeah. So. I hear a lot of, uh, helmet influence on that one. Oh, huge. I mean, it's, you know, we had, we were like, I mean, it's almost, it's like, I mean, you know, busted because <laughs> we had toured with them. We, we toured with them, um, after now I can't remember which record it was. It was very early in their, I think their first, was it strap it on? Yeah. It was after yeah. strap it on had come out. 
That's okay. exactly right. And um, and they were they were a really inspiring band, and it rubbed off in a in a way that is with some songs, with some Jawbox songs, it's so direct as to almost be embarrassing, you know. <laughs> but except I love those songs, and you know, yeah. fuck it, you know, we were yeah. We yeah, I love uh, and they ruled and they were it was exciting and we glommed onto it. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, you know, I mean I love all of the Jawbox records, but I think and I'm not an expert and I don't call the shots, but you know, if you're if you're a band like Jawbox and you haven't put out a record since the mid 90s and you're coming back or the mid to late 90s and you're coming back, right? You don't want to sound exactly like the mid to late 90s. You want to incorporate the uh heart and soul of the band but also sort of what you're doing now i think that i think that's the move like uh i think quicksand has done that successfully i think hopes fall has done that successfully there's a lot of bands who uh who figure out the formula well what i would really hope honestly is that it's not calculated you know like yeah. it's not it's never been calculated for me and i don't think it's ever been calculated not in not in that way you know it's like you just got to listen to what's trying to come out of you. And there are certain things that you can have an intellect about, you know, you can be, you can, you can have a degree of calculation about calculation is the wrong word. It's a stupid word. Like you can have a degree of like, you know, you can intellectually examine how the bass and drums work together, how, like, like, what's a good fill that propels you into the chorus or like how to make the chorus feel bigger or whatever, but you cannot, I think if you're, you know, it's like people say to me like, you know, Oh, that sounds so nineties or whatever. Like I know what they're talking about, you know, fair enough, but it's, it's not, um, you know, it's like, uh, how can I, you know, to me, like you got to just do what's what comes out you know yeah that's if you're not doing that there's then you're starting to talk about um then it's a kind of calculation that i'm just not that on board with you know like, yeah then it's like well it's like if we were to re if we were to get together and start writing and go like well just like what you just said, like, well, let's try and recapture a certain aspect of that 1992 sound, which I think we can do in this way. And we'll have like, let's say like, you know, it's like a fucking board meeting then. Like you're like, okay, 35% of this song will appeal to a 1990s demographic that is, you know, aging into their loafers or whatever. But don't forget to incorporate a 2024 production aesthetic that you copped from Billie Eilish or, you know, like... It's like, <laughs> fuck off. That's not the way it works. Right, right, the right. The way it works is you have something in you and it's got to fucking bust out like a chest burster. You know, like it's got to just come out of you and you got to wrangle it and create it and use it to build a bridge with other people. That's what it is. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, yeah. And you, you can tell what that is when you're writing with people. Like I'll write a riff sometimes and I'm like, eh. That sounds like something I would have written like 15 years ago. So I'm going to put that one on the back burner and then I'll just keep going until I, something feels right. And we know when that is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really funny to be, it was funny to relearn old Jawbox songs because some of those tunes, like, it's almost like you, you play that music and it takes you back to the state of mind that you were in when you were, when you were putting it together in the first place. 
Oh yeah. And you know, which in your twenties, at least for me, a large part of my twenties, it's just like, ah, what the <laughs> fuck? You know, like, am I grown up yet? What's happening? Like, what is this world I'm in? You know, like, and, um, and then remembering, I mean, like there's a song, the first, uh, time that we ever tried to write with Zach, right? Zach's, he joins the band and then it's like the first band practice together where we're trying to work on new stuff. And it, it almost literally was like, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, it's not like somebody showed a part or anything. It really, in my memory, it's like, he just goes, okay, one, two, three, four. And everybody's like, no prep, no nothing. What the fuck are we going to do? So it's this song jackpot plus. And I, and I remember going back to relearn it. And I'm like, this song, about 85% of this song is just E. <laughs> it's just like the first chord I thought of to make when he was, when he, when he hit go, you know, and it just came out like, you're just like literally a wrestling match with the guitar. And that's what the song is just like grabbing on for dear life. And, um, it's really funny to go back and think like, oh, that's the way it, that's, that's what came out. That's the way it came out, you know? <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. I mean, but so it, it, it is funny that, uh, that playing music can, it is like a little weird time machine that way. It's cool. Cause it's like, I got to go back and kind of, uh, shake hands with my 20 something self and say, you know, like I've been in the habit of giving you a lot of shit, but in reality, like you did pretty good. You were doing the best you could do. And actually this, these songs are a lot better than I gave them credit for. And, you know, and be able to like put something of my 50 something self into it. So it feels, you know, it feels like what's coming out of my mouth is meaningful and relevant to my life instead of being on a weird nostalgia trip, you know? Right. Right. So we have the new solo LP Basilisk. It is out right now. It just came out on discord records. Yes. Yes. And we want people to listen to it and purchase it and support you. I, I would love it if people listened to it. It would make me very happy. <laughs> yeah. And listen, everybody, make sure you check it out because I absolutely love it. My favorite song, Exquisite Corpse. That's a hit. Oh, thank you. We've got a hit on our hands. Thank you. I appreciate absolutely. that greatly. And uh, you've got some gigs coming up, right? Yes. Uh, February 15th through 24th in the Midwest and East coast. So everybody, if one of those gigs is happening near you, go see Jay. We're going to, apparently we're going to see burning airline songs. That's exciting. We, yeah. There'll be some burning airline songs in the, in the set for sure. And, um, you can, there's a, there's a thing called the internet. That's like a giant repository of information. And I'm pretty sure the show schedule and ticket links and stuff are, are, are there if you're familiar with the internet yes if you uh if yeah. you know how to use the internet uh everybody do that and go out and see jay uh and jay i just want to thank you so much for coming on the show i've been listening to you whether it be your bands or bands you've recorded and worked with since i got into this music and i really appreciate you and thank you so much for taking the time to well, come on the show thank you Keith. i really really appreciate it a lot And there you have it, Jay Robbins. Amazing conversation. Another person 
who has done everything and is still doing everything. You know, during the conversation, it was kind of wrapping up. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to ask him if we can keep going. I was so engaged in everything we were talking about. And I'm glad that I did. I don't always get up the courage to say, hey, can we keep going? You know, do you have another 20 minutes, whatever. Sometimes I just stick to the allotted time. But Jay said he had more time. And then we covered some extra stuff in that conversation, the Jawbox reunion, the 2019 reunion, that whole conversation and everything you heard after that was bonus. And I was just, I was just super engaged the entire time we were talking. I learned a lot. And oh, let me say too, definitely, definitely check out Jay's new solo record, Basilisk. I'm pretty sure this record is going to end up on my top 10 best records of the year. It's really good. Really good. Exquisite Corpse is a jam. And the song he wrote about his son Callum, Old Soul, just unbelievably touching. And look, Jay's done it all. From Government Issue all the way up till this record now. I was really excited to hear about Burning Airlines as well, because that's the band that introduced me to Jay. And Mission Control is a record I still go back to, to this day. Jawbox, Your Own Special Sweetheart. That whole era of the band, still something I pull from when I'm writing. And remember, Jay's shows continue this week. Go see him if you have the chance. I'll be seeing him Tuesday night, the 20th, in Brooklyn at Union Pool. I'm excited about that because I still haven't seen any of his bands live yet, sadly. So this will be my first time. And apparently, the solo band plays Pacific 231 by Burning Airlines live. I can't wait to see that. Awesome, awesome stuff. Thank you so much, Jay, for coming on the show. So let's check in, huh? How are we doing? I am doing great. It's a quiet Sunday here. I had band practice for the first time yesterday since December or something when we were in the studio last. The EP is going to be finished up recording hopefully by next month. And then I want to get it mixed and mastered in April, and then more will be revealed from there. So that continues. Last weekend, I saw Jerome's Dream on Super Bowl Sunday, and that was amazing. Sinaloa opened for Jerome's Dream, and they were awesome. They were like a uh, kind of a early to mid-90s sounding emo slash post-hardcore band. My first time seeing them. And at the gig, I actually met Pete, who's in that band, and talked to him for a while. Uh, He's a fan of the podcast, and now I'm a fan of his band. So, Pete, very nice to meet you. After that, Jerome's Dream played, and look, they're just one of my favorite bands in general. Amazing on record, amazing live. You all know that The Gray In Between was my pick for best record of the year last year. And Jerome's Dream do not disappoint. I'm happy to see that there's always a lot of younger people in the crowd for their shows. And it's just a, it's a good, safe, chaotic energy. Everyone just kind of jumps around and knocks into each other and is having a good time and just letting it all out. And it's just so good. And I got to catch up with the guys for a little bit after the show and just 
talk about different things and talk about how their shows are going and talk about stuff I'm up to. So it was very nice to spend a few minutes with them in person as well. Awesome stuff. And then last night, Saturday, I went to see Sumac. I got there right as they were starting up. And wow, I'm glad I went. I'm really glad I went. They don't play very often. Who knows when I would have gotten the chance to see them again. Sold out gig. And just knowing everything about the band, talking about it with Aaron on this show, was great. The improvisation and just the heavy, heavy riffs and watching everybody in the crowd headbanging in unison. And I had my eye on Brian, the bass player, a lot of the time. Oh my God, the stuff he plays is crazy. Just the the amount of movement and notes that he's hitting. As I'm watching that, I'm I'm just imagining a scenario in where I would have to learn a song like that. And it was giving me anxiety because <laughs> it was just, it was just so intricate. And then the closer was just this massive riff. And I know I've heard that song before. I can't remember the name of it, but wow. Super glad I went to that show. If you ever have the opportunity to see Sumac live, do it because you're going to get a you're going to get a unique experience, unique to you. And I'm also happy to report that at every single show I went to recently, uh, my streak continued of a guy uh, backing up directly into my face and standing one centimeter from my face, no matter what show I go to, no matter where I stand. There must be something inside me. There must be some kind of pheromone or attractant that attracts the most annoying people at every show who have no spatial recognition whatsoever. No matter where I stand, no matter what I do, someone will back up. They will back up into my face so that their hair is touching my nose And I can't move back because there's a guy right behind me. But that person backing up into my face has a good 50 feet in front of them. And they could stand anywhere. But they have to back up directly into my face. Okay, at the Sumac show last night. At the Sumac show. I'm standing there. I have a good eyesight with the band. I have a good direct line of eyesight with the band. There's a guy standing in front of me and to the right. He takes a step to the left and steps backwards, directly in front of my face. And I was really frustrated because I was tired. And then I took a few steps forward around him so that I could continue watching the band. So that streak will continue indefinitely forever, I guess. And look, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the scene. Did you see Have Heart announced a string of reunion shows? Hope Conspiracy are playing shows soon. Coles have announced a reunion gig at Furnace Fest. Now, I hope there's other shows that happen, like maybe something in Brooklyn. I, I really hope there's something else that happens because I don't think I want to go to Furnace Fest again. Nothing against the fest, it's just I'm old and three days out in the sun... I don't know if I can do it again. I had fun the two times I went and I would just like to leave it there. But if there's any band that could get me to go to Furnace Fest again, Coles is one of them. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But that's really, really exciting. By the way, Sean Ingram, if somehow you hear this, please come on this podcast. 
I need that conversation to happen, okay? I need it. But besides that, now it's a quiet Sunday here. I didn't realize it was going to be a long weekend until Friday. So bonus for that. I'm gearing up for a long night of playing video games tonight. I am deep, deep into Elden Ring now. Uh, About 40 hours into the game, I'm really finally starting to understand it. And I'm doing different quests and, you know, I'll stumble upon something online and I'll be like, okay, let's go do, let's go do that. So I did the quest with the first guy you see, Azul or whatever his name is. You can get access to the other underground. And then I accidentally opened up the lift to the final area of the game. And I was like, wait, I don't want to be here yet. There's a lot more to do. So I'm having a lot of fun with that game. I finished the new Quake chapters that they released in 2020. Those were excellent. That only took me like four years to do. I started up Quake Dwell Chapter 2. If you're a Quake fan, check the check Dwell out. It's really excellent. I have Sigil 2, which is another new chapter to Doom that John Romero made as part of the Doom 30th anniversary. So I'll probably play some Sigil 2 later tonight. And... um I switched computers recently. Okay, so back in 2021, when the new scene first got announced and was first starting, I invested in a new desktop gaming computer for myself. One, because I wanted to switch to PC for Warzone and become a mouse and keyboard player, which I did. And number two, I needed a a new computer, something with more processing power, for the podcast and the content generation and all of that. And I have retired that computer as of last week. It has carried me through many games of Warzone and many episodes of this podcast. And I bid it farewell. And I I thank you for your service, Gaming PC. You ever get attached to inanimate objects like that? It's happened to me. You know, I used to travel constantly for work, and I remember when I had to throw away my first suitcase that I bought. That was kind of a weird moment. And now I am sunsetting this PC, and that's kind of a weird moment. But I've got a new PC. I bought a newer, even stronger PC, I don't know, two years ago, but I've barely used it. I've only used it for games. So that will become my primary PC now. It's up. It's ready, it's working, and I'm all set up here. And speaking of gaming, yeah, I decided that I hate live streaming. Well, I don't like it. I don't like streaming on Twitch. I don't like making gaming content. And I really hate making long-form gaming content. The reels are okay, but I was making some long-form gaming content at one point, and I really hate that. I started to hate gaming because I, you know, every time I went to play a game, I'd be like, I have to stream on Twitch. I have to make a video. I have to record this. So I stopped and I thought maybe I'd pick up the gaming content stuff at another time, but no, I don't like it. Uh, New scene gaming is gone. It's done. Uh, I won't be streaming on Twitch again. I don't enjoy it. Gaming is the one thing left that I have that's just mine that I like to do in my leisure time. So it will stay there. So that's it. No more gaming content. And that's fine. I mean, that's the point of life, right? To try 
different things and find out what you like and find out what you don't like. During the pandemic, I found all these gaming content creators and, you know, Twitch, which I still watch a lot of, but I I only enjoy watching it. I don't actually enjoy doing it. And that's fine. That's fine. I have discovered that now through doing it myself. So let's move into the new scene community hour. Now, we are still on the push to 200 Apple Podcast reviews. So if you have not reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts, open up the podcast app on your iPhone, search the new scene, scroll down a bit, hit that five-star button, and if you write a review, I will read it right now in this section of the show. And I have a new review. It is from Trey Straight Edge. Five stars. I got five on it. Trey, thank you for getting us to 189 reviews. I think someone took away a review or something because we were at 188 and then it went back down to 187 and now it's back up to 189. So thank you, Trey. And thank you, everybody who has submitted a review either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're very close to 200 on, on Apple Podcasts. Let's try to close the gap this week. Let's do it. Then we'll give it a rest for a while and pick it up at another time. I also got a Spotify Q&A message from Joey Knowles, and he had this to say about their most recent Matt Pryor episode. Joey says, never really got into the band, but really a fan of this interview. Think I might check out the book and dive into some records. Thank you, Joey. And you're welcome, Matt Pryor. There you go. A potential new Get Up Kids fan who might check out the band and your new book. I love the idea of someone listening to an episode of this show when they don't even really know or like the artist. That is interesting to me. I like that. I like that. And I know it happens because there is a certain number of people who listen to every episode. And I know a lot of people have checked out music because of interviews I've done. And look, a lot of interviews I've done have gotten me more into the bands I've, I speak to. So I love that. And that is it for this week. That is it. Next week, we have another new episode of the podcast, as well as the artist spotlight interview, which is going to be with an excellent band, Stay Inside, who I recently saw open up for Code 7. So make sure you stick around for that. Make sure you stay tuned next month. Next month is going to be another big one for this podcast. We are not slowing down at all here at the new scene. And I'm going to end the show with the band Do Make Say Think. The song is called A Tender History in Rust. I just randomly remembered this band and it reminded me of the good old days and I remembered this song and then I was listening to it and I was like, yes, yes, this is good stuff. So I'll add it to the new scene 2024 Spotify playlist. Make sure you check out that playlist. I put all of the music associated with the show in that playlist. And there's a playlist for every year the show has been active. So you can go back and check out everything, every band that's been on the show, all of my recommendations, everything. I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening and until next time. Thank you.